Welcome back, everybody. My name is Kirsten Merle, and you're listening to the 6 p.m. news on Dallas LTD. We got a wonderful story for you here tonight. We're going to be heading live to Houston in a minute to hear from Governor Matthew McConaughey in his acceptance speech after defeating incumbent Greg Abbott in the governorship race for Texas. Let's head over to Houston. All right, all right, all right. Wow. Just, my God. I just, I'm so, guys, come on, guys, guys. Wow, I just, I'm so humble to be standing here before all my fellow Texans. I've seen you guys at the college games, but I never thought I'd be standing in front of you. As the governor of Texas, the great state, the Lone Star State, you know, ever since they discovered oil in this here wonderful place, I knew we was destined for greatness. And then when I see men like H.W. Bush, W. Bush, getting elected into the highest office, it made me believe that, that, that I could and that one day I would use all my incredible charisma charm and good looks and all-around sexy personality for good and to help people. I'm sure uh, a lot of you have seen my uh, Oscar-winning film, Dallas Buyers Club. All right, all right, all right, you've seen it. Yeah, 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 okay, okay. Well, in that film, the character that I'm playing, he's got AIDS. I know. Sad. And in many ways, I feel like that character is symbolic of the American people. And the American people have AIDS. A lot of them are on crack. A lot of them need help, healing. And I've been through suffering myself before. And I feel your pain. I'm here to help. Thank you, Texas. What's up, ladies and gents? Welcome back to Party Roulette. My name is Felix Fiasi, the host of the most. This is episode 25, I believe. Thank you for being here today. Normally, I would have my special guest, Elmer Fudd, with me on the show. But today, I left at last minute, and I'm recording this on the fly, which means I'm on my own, which also means that this is going to be much more improvised. In general. And that can be a good thing. That can be a bad thing. We don't know. Maybe it'll be shit. Maybe it'll be magical. Maybe it'll be fun. In the words of my good friend, Linton, from many parties back in yonder yesteryear. But yeah, guys, how are we doing? The intro skit, which I just did there, of young Matthew McConaughey getting elected as the Texas governor, it's in fact true. Well, not true, true, but sort of true. He is considering running for the governorship. I think the incumbent, Greg Abbott, he's up for re-election next year. Um, maybe this year. I'm not too sure on the exact details. But yeah, he said in the podcast recently that he was uh, truly considering running. Um, and then the Dallas Morning News ran a story on it. Not a story, sorry. did a poll on it um, of him versus Matthew McConaughey. Matthew McConaughey 
kind of blew him out of the water. He got 45% against Greg Abbott's 33%. That's a 12-point lead. And for somebody who's never been involved with politics, who's never really been that vocal about politics, who is literally just an actor, um, but obviously one of the biggest acts in the world, for him to, out of the gate, after just saying in a podcast, oh, I'm considering it, for him to have a 12-point lead on the incumbent is pretty mad. Um, and I think it says a lot about the the faith that people have in politicians nowadays. Um, but yeah, pretty mad. I would kind of love to see it. I mean, I guess this is how people felt about Arnold Schwarzenegger back in the day. Like, yeah, he's probably not the best politician ever, but everybody wants to see the Terminator in the governorship you know, putting on the suit, looking fucking sick. Like, there's just something in the in our minds that it kind of sparks. Like, ooh, isn't that cool? He's not he's not a politician, but doesn't he look good in the suit? Doesn't he doesn't he speak nice? Isn't that good? But yeah. Anyway, um, I did have some stories that I wanted to run through about U.S. politics and uh, talk about that, but I feel like I spoke about it quite a lot. The last episode with Elmer, obviously it was all about US politics there. Um, but yeah, I kind of wanted to speak more about coronavirus because for the past year I've been doing a podcast on coronavirus. Sorry, not on coronavirus, sorry, during coronavirus without ever speaking about it. And part of me was intentionally avoiding that discussion because I knew that Maybe my opinions weren't in the mainstream or I didn't want to be vilified for what I said. Um, And my opinions were constantly changing and they still are. But I think nowadays I'm in a frame of mind where I don't feel afraid of my opinions anymore. I don't feel like I'm going to be attacked for for what I say. Um, And yeah, I feel like it's, it's about time and it's been long enough and... Obviously, this is a politics podcast. It's always been mostly U.S. politics, but we've gone into different countries where and if in it, sorry, my words are lost on me today, where and if necessary. Um, and yeah, I feel like one of the biggest issues with coronavirus and how we've approached it globally has been the politicization of it and how it's, it's, it's been framed as a health issue. It's been framed as something which we have to take these measures. We have to do these things. Otherwise, there will be an enormous loss of life. And that almost transcends politics. It transcends economics. It speaks to us on a very human level about the sanctity of life and wanting to safeguard it. And that's why it's been such a massive response. And it's, it's, it's unprecedented, the extent to which we have allowed our lives to become focused on one thing. Everything is dictated through this now. You have corona offices all over. You have an entire sector of the economy which is dedicated to to stopping the spread of this, to monitoring it, to to everything to do with coronavirus. Um, I think when I first started going into, into lockdown, lockdown mode, lockdown mindset, I was really vehemently against it. And I was, in a sense... I still am, Um, especially against some of the harsher policies like the curfew um, and really disincentivizing people from socializing at all, socialize responsibly, 
I think a lot of these narratives are they're leaving out an aspect of life which is integral to life, which is that we need interactions to be happy. And that's really what makes life worth living is, is seeing people, interacting, meeting new people. Um, and I think I've been quite lucky to be working on a radio project where I can meet people somewhat regularly and you know I have a place to go and have a place to work. But for a lot of people, it's been very depressing. And sometimes I feel like that has been left out of the conversation. And of course, because mental health now is such a big thing and it's finally getting the recognition and the airtime that it deserves, then maybe people don't think about it as much and they think, oh, well, you know, depression's a thing, but you can talk about it now, right? You can post about it online, right? And that isn't really the biggest thing. The biggest thing is actually having people live their normal lives because that's what makes people happy. Um, yeah, coming back to the politicization of coronavirus, um, why I wanted to speak about it in this podcast. When I first started to develop opinions about coronavirus, it was through the lens of, of looking at this in terms of power structures and decision-making because I do feel like that that inclination to view it as a public health crisis was very powerful and very immediate and very emotive. And it almost created an environment where debate, criticism is not allowed because if you jump into that camp, if you say, oh, maybe these measures aren't correct or maybe this is an overreaction or maybe we should be doing this or that, then you immediately get lumped into, okay, well, you're part of the problem, which is a, is a real straw man way of looking at it, which I didn't like and... Yeah, I feel like when I first started to think about it, it was in relation to power structures, and that is how things work. This wasn't something which had to happen. The world did not have to lock down, but we chose to lock down. In the same way that in every single major crisis in history, it did not have to happen. And we can look back and go, okay, World War I did not have to happen. The Boer War did not have to happen. The Franco-Prussian War did not have to happen. All of these things did not have to happen, but they did. And they happened very naturally. And you had people at the time saying, this has to happen. You know, it's like in the moment, people always, politicians, leaders, whoever, they always in the moment think they're doing the thing that is right and that is correct and that is the only option. But there's always other options. And I feel like that is, is something which has definitely been left out of discourse. But coming back to the power structures... I feel like I started to look at it through the lens of, okay, there's three main power structures here which are making these decisions. And the first of those is health organizations. So initially that was the who, 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 who really enforced the idea that, okay, this is a global pandemic, this is a crisis, this is um, a really big thing. And this is something that we need to, to do something about. And of course they do that because this is their job. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't have. I'm not saying they were wrong to do that. I'm saying that that is their job. They are the World Health Organization. So they have to give statements, take stances, do analysis, and predict against the worst case scenario because that's their job. In the same way that somebody who monitors earthquakes has to predict against all the earthquakes, they have to do the same with pandemics and predict the worst case scenario so that we will be prepared for that because that's their job. 
And then from that point, you have the media, whose job it is to cover stuff and to focus on the things which are of most importance to the people or of most interest to the people. And when you have something like this, which is just the most perfect media storm and is something that's taken the whole world by storm and is country to country, there's a number to it, there's a name to it, there's something which everybody can understand immediately and everybody can be afraid of immediately. Um, and that was what happened. You know, everybody remembers back in March the images of Italian hospitals, Spanish hospitals, and also Chinese cities locking down and how that was viewed as like, okay, this is the solution then, right? Um, the media pushed that narrative on us. And again, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have done that or that that was really terrible. I'm saying that that's their job is to push the narrative that people care about or that people are interested in or that they think is important to them. So, of course, that became the only thing that we were talking about in those weeks last year. And then on top of this, you have the politicians. And these are the people who make the decision of whether or not we lock down society. And when you have a situation where the health organizations are saying lockdown, or not even necessarily lockdown, but this is a pandemic, this is bad, this is going to kill this number of people, and you have the media talking about nothing else except these numbers, these predictions, what are the politicians to do besides lockdown? I don't think they really had a choice in any of this. Because as a politician, your job is not really to represent the people. That is, you know, that's the, that's the, the motto of politicians. That's what it says on the tin, you know? The same way, like, police officers in America is, is to protect and serve. But what is their real job? Their real job is to maintain the law and to enforce rules and to and to punish people that's what their job is and in the same way it's it's not the job of politicians to protect us serve us represent us their job is to get reelected and their job is to maintain power and make decisions and when you present politicians with a crisis like this where the only thing in public consciousness is is coronavirus, and there's a fear that's gripping the entire world. Of course they have to respond to it, because they know that if they don't, in the next election, they will get hammered by their opponents. And if they haven't reacted adequately, if they haven't done everything that they think would make them look like they're taking action, then their opponents can come out and say, hey, you didn't do a curfew. You didn't do face masks. You didn't do all of these things. These deaths, these 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 corona deaths, these are on your hands. Doesn't matter. Every, any, nothing else about the circumstances of those deaths is very important because these opponents can say that and that argument will land. And so many politicians across the world have been afraid of this eventuality. And again, I'm not criticizing their actions here. I'm trying to explain my opinion on the way in which these decisions were made and how politicians are much more self-interested than we have been thinking they are in the past year. And it seemed like before coronavirus, people tended to understand, even still like outside of coronavirus, there's almost like a, 
a bit of cognitive dissonance that occurs when looking at these issues because outside of coronavirus, we can all accept that politicians are dickheads and that they make bad decisions and they're selfish and we criticize them to no end. Um, if we're looking at Holland, for example, you have Mark Rutte with the Tuslach affair where they were essentially convicted of racist policymaking. If you look at um, England, everything to do with Brexit, everything to do with Boris Johnson being a horrible person um, and a bad leader. You know, it's he gets widespread condemnation, as do many other politicians in many other places. But there's this feeling that with coronavirus, it's like we almost have to trust politicians and we have to accept that they're doing everything that they can right now and it's in our best interest and that's sort of that. And for me, that's always been very frustrating because my opinions towards politicians are consistent across the board and I'm going to criticize and scrutinize their policymaking, whatever it is. Um, and with coronavirus, I still feel like it's just been overly politicized and it's something which hasn't been able to get out of that just yet. And even with countries opening up nowadays and the summer coming, I'm still afraid that this culture is going to carry on and this idea that people can stay inside whenever they want and politicians have that option to just shut down society and that's okay and we'll accept it. To me, it's it's quite scary. Um, I think also because I'm somebody who values my freedom quite a lot to have restrictions on it and for politicians to tell me that it's actually illegal for me to be outside during darkness, even if I just want to go for a walk or go sit by the river or anything on my own, that that is now illegal or not technically illegal. My friend was correcting me on this yesterday. It's, uh, it's, you can get penalized for it, but not criminalized. So that's, uh, you won't get a criminal record, mate. It's fine. We're just going to arrest you if you, if, if you're difficult, <laughs> I find all these policies to be to be really fucked up and we we've accepted them with with a lot of uh a lot of ease. An example which I was researching recently was uh Sweden. And Sweden got a lot of notoriety in the past year for being one of the only countries in the world which didn't lock down society. And at no point in the past 13 months has Sweden closed its restaurants or bars? And it, it almost sounds like a little thing, you know, like, oh, the restaurants and the bars, it's like we want them back desperately, but we're happy to sacrifice them if that's what it takes. Um, but Sweden haven't done it. And from the Swedish, I was writing about this for my thesis, um, and I was speaking to people that I know in Sweden about all of this and how they've experienced the pandemic and how they view their government. And there's a very interesting governmental system in Sweden right now where there is no real opposition. And for the government to actually form a government two years ago, because it was such a split vote across five different parties who all had like, you know, a lot of a lot of votes. It was different to the Dutch system where here there's almost too many parties and it's hard because there's like 12 with all like a decent share. Whereas in Sweden, it was like, okay, five have a decent share and it's like 30, 30, 20, 10, 10, 10. 
And all of them basically teamed up against the far-right party, the Swedish Democrats. Um, and they knew that, okay, we all have to team up, work together to keep these far-right people out of, out of the decision-making processes. Um, so in the last two years, they've had this culture there where they haven't had too much fear of opposition, where they're not thinking about what their opponents are going to say. They're just thinking about, okay, what is the best decision for the country, for the people? That's our job. They don't have as much job threats in Sweden, in, politici in, in, in politics. Um, so as a result of this situation where they've had to work together much more closely, they're essentially not as afraid of what each other are going to say. Even though they're in different parties, different policies, they have to compromise much more. So when these crises came into Sweden, they weren't thinking about, okay, are we going to lose our jobs? What are our opponents going to say? Because everybody was in the same room. And I know with Sweden, a lot of people have said, oh, okay, but they have a smaller society. They have much lower population density than other parts of Europe. But that isn't the most important thing. The most important thing is how do they actually do their politics? How are these decisions made? Because in countries like Denmark, Finland, Norway, which all have similar situations politically, economically, population density. Um, they opted for lockdown. And Sweden didn't. And I really do think that if, if more parts of the world had political systems like that, then there would have been much different reactions. We wouldn't have had curfew and harsh lockdown. And, and granted, there would have been more deaths, almost certainly. Sweden has a higher per capita death rate than its neighbors. Um, but compared to other things, Sweden actually has a lower death rate than its neighbors um, in the past year. And the rest of Europe, it has one of the lowest death rates in Europe. So, you know, we have to look at these things of, okay, are we concerned about death or are we concerned about corona death? And for me, it's always been death has been the thing which... I'm concerned about and I would base my politics on avoiding. Um, and then it comes back to a much bigger argument of us deciding to shut down the global economies has resulted in millions and millions of more people starving and dying of thirst and being plunged into poverty. Like Global poverty has skyrocketed in the past year and we're going to go into a global recession as a result of shutting down our economies. And again, not to say that we shouldn't have done it or we shouldn't have done anything. I don't know what we should have done. But for me, sometimes it feels like the arguments have become so wholly focused on coronavirus that we're losing sight of everything else happening in the world. The UN put out a report in July last year that 90 million more people are now at risk of starvation as a result of shutting down the global economy. And I feel like as Western people, a lot of the time we can't really imagine these, these situations and the, the fact that people do actually die of starvation. And in many places in the world, it's a very common occurrence. And we might even say, oh, we've been to these places. Like we know people who are in Nigeria or India or anywhere. And somehow that makes it okay to like understand that people are poor. But the actual idea of 
of you dying of starvation or somebody that you know or that you care about dying of starvation is so alien to us and almost like it doesn't exist, you know? It's a number. But then when we get presented with something like old people dying, people in our country dying, old people dying of preventable illnesses, then it's something which resonates and it's something that we can all be a bit afraid of. And that for me has also been quite quite sad that people have become a lot more, whether or not they're aware of it, whether or not it was intentional, people have become a lot more protectionist. Both governments and societies are now quite afraid of people coming in and if we get a situation where we have vaccine passports and that is going to be the deciding factor of whether or not you can get into a country. It all just seems very isolationist to me and very protectionist. And yeah, I don't know if it'll be good. But yeah, I'm going to wrap things up now because people are looking to use the studio. And uh, maybe we will continue the corona discussion another time. But yeah, the coronavirus wages on. The end it doesn't look that close, but summer is close. And that's about as close to the end as we're going to get right now. So, yeah, thank you for listening, guys. My name is Felix Fiasi, and I'll see you next time.